Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Now, I mentioned at the start of the show that uh, I was going to play an interview today with the artistic director of Perth Festival. Perth Festival runs from the 7th of February to the 1st of March. And one of the reasons I like to acknowledge and include the major international arts festivals around the country, so Darwin, Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide, Perth, Dark Mofo, for example, uh, 10 Days on the Island and so forth, is that the art is an ecology. It's interconnected. And what happens in one city echoes and ripples and has ramifications elsewhere. Sometimes good, uh, uh, sometimes bad. If you kill off a major company interstate, for example, because their funding has been axed, then that ripples and has ramifications, uh, negative impacts on the sector. But the international arts festivals around the country do play a key role in commissioning work, supporting new work, bringing in international work that we might not otherwise see. The Perth Festival 2020, as I said, running from the 7th of February to the 1st of March, it's the first festival to be uh, programmed by artistic director Ian Grandage, who is a composer and a classically trained musician and a big believer in uh, collaboration between artists and art forms. It's not only his first Perth Festival, it's also the first time the Perth Festival has been artistic directed, is that, a, is that a phrase? Has had an artistic director who was born and raised in Perth and WA. And so... In our conversation, I began asking Ian kind of how that kind of knowledge about Perth, whether that gives him extra insight into programming the festival. Um, that's certainly been my pitch. <laughs> um, I look, look, I think so. I, I, I've observed a series of festival directors come to Perth and slowly fall in love with the place. Um, I love the place already, and I think there's a there's a sense of um, of of knowing uh, what people like. Uh, there's a sense of of having friends who have committed them committed their creative life to living in Perth. Um, some of those inside literature, be it the Robert Drews and the Tim Wintons, others being inside um, music like the the John Butlers and Birds Tokyos, and then there's others uh, in the in the performing arts as well. Um, and I, I've worked alongside many of those people. And, and I mean, primary amongst them are uh, some of the Noongar elders and um, Noongar practitioners. And I, it feels like if I'm going to build a festival, to build it around place feels the, the most useful thing I can do as a person. And certainly that sense of place that you've encapsulated in your program for the, the 2020 Perth Festival is not just a sense of place physically, but a sense of place historically in terms of acknowledging 60, 75,000 years of, of culture and history and experience that you've embodied in your program both physically on the pages of the program by acknowledging the Noongar names for the different parts of Perth where the festival is taking place. But your entire first week is dedicated to First Nations culture. Did you see that or did the board see that as a somewhat radical statement at all? Or is it more for you a a case of 
less statement, more celebration and highlighting of this rich millennia-old culture? Look, it's undoubtedly the celebration, Richard, as you so beautifully put it. It's... um, uh, I, I've been collaborating with Indigenous artists from around the country for for two decades. It's been the most personally rewarding part of my practice for for much of that time. And if I can even make bring some people onto that staircase of understanding and of appreciation um, uh, that somehow I've. Uh, that's been reflected in my own life, then uh, then I've done some of my job. A lot of people are on that staircase as well with me already. Um, and this is, this is uh, for those people, this is uh, completely logical um, to be celebrated. I, as part of my pitch for the job, I said I wanted to do this. The board have been utterly supportive. The public and the, the friends of the festival and those... Um, the the traditional festival goers have been utterly supportive. It doesn't feel strangely doesn't feel at all radical. It just feels like it's um, necessary and of its time. And so it's uh, it's it's felt beautiful the way it's been um, it's been received. One of the opportunities uh, for any arts goer, cultural tourists who may uh, visit one or two interstate festivals each year, the opportunity for them to see something unique, to have uh, an experience that cannot be replicated in any other festival or any other program is part of the reason people travel to embrace and explore art. And certainly it seems like the work Hecate, uh, the culmination of the Perth-based company Yuri Yarkin's ongoing Noongar Shakespeare project really feels like the kind of work that you could not really truly experience and feel in any other city but Perth. So true. I mean, there, there's something about... There's a, what's extraordinary is when you see Indigenous cultural practice on the country in which it, from which it emanates. Um, I mean, so whilst we're presenting with great joy Bungul, this um, this explosion of Yongwu culture based on Dr G's final album, uh, whilst we're um, whilst we're uh, showing Ben Long that um, that great expression of the and Darug culture from Sydney, um, actually having something like Hecate. Uh, and having a fire burning outside with elders there tending to the needs of community, it feels like there's it's going to be uh, um, a, a, a deeply celebratory and um, hope uh, and hopefully joyous kind of expression of of the of the reflowering of Noongar language into into more um, broad. Uh, parts of society. What other aspects of Perth and its culture have you programmed into your first Perth Festival program? Um, so, uh, happily, both uh, Cloud Street and Brand New Day were having revivals. So they buttress and bookend the festival as the two great works that kind of changed the national discourse in theatrical terms from Western Australia. Um uh, not only that, um, in 1962, there's a beautiful story. We are the most isolated in Perth, the most isolated uh, city, and there was an isolated human travelling in a 
tiny metal capsule far above the earth, John Glenn. Um, um, it was decided, the, the burghers of the city decided that they wanted to try and communicate to this guy from a distance, just like Perth tries to communicate to everyone else from a distance for its entire life. Um, and that was... Uh, People laid out sheets underneath their hills hoist. They pointed um, lights and torches and um, left all the street lights on um, for a single night while uh, John Glenn passed over overhead in, in February 1962. And he commented down, uh, saying, "Look at that! Look at that city of lights!" So we've created a festival hub called the City of Lights, which is in celebration of that. It's also a really good excuse to put a whole pile of lanterns up and make it make something, make all of us look better than that than this gross fluorescent light that seems to be um, uh, everywhere these days. But um, give me some tungsten and I'll be happy. Um, uh, so that's part of one one of these aspects of uh, of, uh, of per, specifically Perth history. Um, I've also programmed a, a wonderful work from Ireland called Marm, which speaks to the kind of the old ginger beard stories of, um, of non-Indigenous Australians. This is a uh, Michael Keegan Dolan runs a company uh, on from based on the west coast of Ireland in County Kerry, and he uh, his dance style is not dissimilar to that of Bangara. It's a very earthed and grounded style and and he Michael himself speaks passionately about the um, about the the obscene disruption of colonial of the English colonialism on on Irish culture itself. And um and so in, in having that in in the Perth Festival at the other end from the Indigenous programming, it, it feels like it's a, a way of honouring some of the ancient stories of, of us uh, of us ginger beards. And certainly for Perth audiences or indeed interstate audiences who were at the Perth Festival earlier this year in 1919 and saw uh, uh, Michael Keegan Dolan's Swan Lake, uh, which for me was certainly one of the, the standout works of uh, the Perth Festival that I saw this year. The fact that the company are now starting to build uh, a, a kind of sense of history and engagement with Perth then also hopefully means that Perth audiences will go, oh, this is not unknown to us uh, and another opportunity for them to connect and engage. You've also programmed some uh, works uh, by Australian companies. One of the great opportunities for any uh, Australian International Arts Festival is to showcase Australian work on par and side by side with some of the best work from around the world. Uh, let's talk about Circa, the Brisbane circus company who you've programmed this year. They're making a new work and incorporating, I understand, some local dancers, local circus artists, and indeed local children into the work. Yeah. Look, we're, we're three weeks of party in summertime, but I'm much more interested in making a, um, on a lasting effect on the, on the year-round cultural life of Perth. Um, and one way that we're finding of doing that is presenting something like Stephanie Lake's Colossus on the on 50 Whopper dancers, um, so that they have the essentially they get to not just observe uh, fantastic art, they get to um, to live and breathe it, and it has an effect on their bodies. So to have Steph there, to have uh, Strap doing Hoffa Schechter's uh, great uprising on. On local bodies, and then this this particular work, which is the centerpiece of our final week, Leviathan, um, uh, 
Circa are a glorious company, and they very rarely get to perform with all 18 of their of their company members. But we're we're doubling that by matching those 18 members with six local dancers from Co3, six uh, six circus performers, and six young circus performers. So all up, there'll be 36 people on stage, and it's all about the all about the power of the collective and this little life raft, a, a suspended grid from the ceiling, a life raft of humanity about about the the power of um, human beings if we are working together and certainly um, Iran uh, has found a way of, of of building that strength of humanity as a team um, on stage it's a, from what I've seen of the workshops it's going to be a very beautiful thing if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Ian Grandage, who's the Artistic Director of Perth Festival, and we're speaking about his inaugural program for Perth Festival, running from the 7th of February to the 1st of March in 2020. Now, also in your program, Ian, I wanted to uh, talk about the work Tower of Glass, which is uh, fusing the music of Philip Glass with contemporary puppetry, which strikes me as in- an intriguing combination. Um, so Philip McDermott has worked alongside uh, Philip Glass. He directed uh, Achnaten and Satyagraha, two of Philip's operas for E&O and The Met. Um, but he also toured here with a great work in his company, Improbable, from the UK, um, a, a work called Shockheaded Peter, which is where, when I fell in love with him. Um, it was with the music of the Tiger Lilies and telling all those Struhl Peter, all those, um, those rather... Uh, um, frightening children's stories uh, through methods of puppetry. Anyway, so Felim, uh, I've been a fan of Felim for a long time. Philip Glass gave me the complete shits for many years, in fact. Um, and uh, uh, and now I just find him the most extraordinary composer because Philip actually, for me, rather than his music being banal, what he does is give you the space to dream between the notes. And so while it sounds like endless arpeggios, actually what he's doing is creating this framework for you to bring your own thoughts to it. And what Felin does is bring his own thoughts to this incredible work. It was the hit of the Manchester International Festival. Felin is a very funny raconteur. He tells beautiful stories from his childhood. He's, he's immensely rude about the children's author, Maurice Sendak, because he and Philip Glass were going to collaborate on, a, on, a, on theatricalising a Maurice Sendak book. Um, he and then uh, from from these little anecdotes come the most miraculous uh, formations of puppetry and of dreaming and of philosophy and of kintsugi, the act of Japanese um, uh, of gluing things back together that are broken and make they become more beautiful in their in their reconstituted uh, self, and that is that. that Kintsugi is emblematic of the show itself. It's far more than the sum of its parts. It's a series of anecdotes from Felim in response to Philip's music, and it's a it's a love letter to deep thinking and beautiful music.
Speaking of beautiful music, you have also programmed the likes of The Necks, Blind Boys of Alabama, Mavis Staples in the Contemporary Music Program. There's Cabaret with uh, Rufus Wainwright, Amanda Palmer, and the one and only Meow Meow. And then, of course, you've also got a very, very strong visual arts program, which includes an immersive 3D work, which I was lucky enough to catch uh, at Dark Mofo a year or two ago, Chalk Room by Laurie Anderson and Hussein Chin Huang. That's the one. And it's, uh, look, I was there at Dark Mofo too. It transformed my, that particular evening when I was at Dark Mofo. And look, Laurie's been at the cutting edge of, uh, of technology for many decades. And this is one of those works that feels like she's completely, um, her, her, Dreaming, her creative dreaming is completely simpatico with the technological manifestation of it. So, Xin Cheng Huang feels like a, the, the Taiwanese artist feels like they've found a way of synthesizing this world so that you feel like you're inside Laurie's head. She's whispering in your ear like you've always wanted. She's a play. You you fly around this invented world and you find a spot where she's playing violin for you. It's a it's an extraordinary work that I'm I'm thrilled we get to we get to bring. There's another VR work from the Net Woolworth of Collisions fame um, called Awevena, which is uh, another virtual reality work about um, the the experience of um, an indigenous uh, peoples inside the Amazonian rainforest. So to have these two um, high technology works, which both have deep humanity at the at the core of them, feels like a joy. The Perth Festival runs from the 7th of February until the 1st of March 2020. Full program details at perthfestival.com.au. The only challenge with such a rich program, Ian, is that anybody planning to visit from interstate needs to choose which weekend they go. So do you go to the first weekend for all Indigenous work? Do you go at a later point to see some of the international work? Or do you schedule your visit to make sure that you were there for the very end of the festival for your grand public closing, Highway to Hell, in which a celebration of uh, Perth's son, Bon Scott, uh, in which you are closing down a 10-kilometre section of freeway and turning it into a giant stage celebrating the music of ACDC. That sounds like something not to be missed. Um, well, look, it's, a, it's an idea that was a, a, a thought bubble that's now, frankly, got really out of control. Um, it's uh, there's just like long way to the top if you want to rock and roll around Swanson Street that uh, flatbed trucks, ten flatbed trucks, travel slowly, walking speed down the highway for two and a half hours. It takes them to go that ten kilometres, and they um, uh, and they're performing. They're not they're not cover versions. They're kind of like a versions of uh, of ACDC songs. We've got bluegrass. We've got Japanese prog rock. We've got. Um, saltwater music from Broom. We've got the WA Police Pipe Band. We've got the Perth Symphony Orchestra. We've, we're now starting to get because it, it, it's been released. We've uh, every day I get four or five pictures from um, from bands. We've got the great Melbourne band Amal and the Sniffers um, coming across. Uh, we. Uh, um, but we're getting approaches from uh, ACDC bands from New Caledonia and Japan saying, we just want to be in it. We're going to fly ourselves there and perform. Um, we've got multicultural arts, Western Australia, doing uh, going. We've been doing Bollywood versions of a few ACDC songs already. It's kind of, it's now got this, um, this, uh, this, 
ever-rolling kind of energy about it where people are, uh, are dying to come along and join. It's on the 1st of March, which happens to be 40 years to the day since Bond was buried in Fremantle Cemetery. Um, we invite everyone to follow the last the last of these trucks and it can become a little funeral cortege to remember that great Australian musician. As I said, Perth Festival running from the 7th of February until the 1st of March in 2020. If you jump online, www.perthfestival.com.au, you can explore the full program, including performance, music, visual arts, contemporary music, literature, ideas and a film festival. We've barely scratched the surface. But Ian Grandage, many thanks for your time today. Oh, it's so lovely to chat. Triple R. My next guests have joined us in the studio to talk independent theatre and a production called She is Vigilante at Theatre Works, which is not your straightforward traditional play because it's a series of short plays presented under the umbrella title She is Vigilante. Uh, All of the stories, uh, all of the plays are stories about women who stand up, rebel and kick ass. And I'm joined in the studio by the project's co-director, who's also one of the playwrights, uh, Christella Pierce. Welcome. And uh, one of the other writers, uh, Maya Amanita. Welcome to Triple R. Hi, thanks for having us. Very great pleasure. So, uh, Christella, we'll start with you. What was the the inception? Uh, what what sparked this? Let's get a whole bunch of writers together to present work. Well, Bridget and I uh, first thought about this uh, concept about a year ago, and we we're really interested in access. So, a big part of the project is getting as many new artists into theatre works as possible Um, in terms of the theme vigilantes and particularly women vigilantes um, we're interested in creating complex and complicated um, roles for women uh, both to play on stages and to write about. So in terms of access we're talking about bringing in people to the theatre who what may not have been involved with the theatre previously for example may not have had the opportunity or may even have thought theatre is not for them. Definitely. Um, So in terms of our writers uh, we did a blind uh, call out so that meant that we got a whole lot of submissions. We didn't know the names of anyone uh, when we selected the works. We selected them on their writing. Um, and that was really to make sure that we didn't pick our mates, which happens a lot in theatre. Uh, and then when it came to finding the performers, we did an open call out uh, initially through uh, public housing organisations and local council to St Kilda, uh, where Theatre Works is. And um, everyone that is was interested in being involved has ended up being on our stage. Um, So there were no auditions held and we have a really incredible group of what has ended up being all women, which kind of makes sense given the subject matter, but we were open to men being part of the ensemble as well. Um, And, um, yeah, they're all doing a really fantastic job and we hope that all of these different women who have not been on um, stages will bring their new audiences as well. So we'll have different people coming in to sit in the theatre as well as be on the stage. Maya, how did you hear about the, the call for writers and why did you decide to get involved? Um, I came across uh, a little advertisement on a poetry website. I think it was Girls on Key um, listed it as an opportunity to write for theatre works and they listed the, the theme, obviously, She is Vigilante, which uh, struck a real chord with me as, you know, a ranty, nasty kind of angry woman. So um, I actually had a, a, 
a bit of material already up my sleeve. I had a little Instagram page going and I sent them a link to one of the pieces that I'd written about a uh, commercial stick mixer, which is used in a lot of commercial kitchens, uh, restaurants and in kitchens at home. And I repurposed this uh, stick mixer to uh, offer it to women as a weapon of self-defence. And the ladies liked the idea, so we just... Ran with that. Yeah. What was your writing background before this? Uh, given that you've ref- just you said you saw the call out on a poetry web- website. Yeah. Poetry and spoken word. Or that's my background. It's uh, something I've been getting into just fairly recently, just over a year. So I started doing spoken word. I started writing um, a little while ago, and for some reason, all of my writing kept coming out in rhyme. So I thought, well, that's cool. I can put it in a diary, but what else can I do with it? So I went to spoken word and had quite a few. Um, launches at that on the Melbourne spoken word scene and then started uh, putting all my little brain farts out on Instagram and that's where it's been bubbling along nicely now. The opportunity, uh, Christella, to bring in such a range of writers, including writers who haven't written for the theatre before, kind of could be a two-edged sword. You kind of bring a new energy and a new enthusiasm and excitement and clearly new voices and new f- ways of, of expression. But if people haven't written for the theatre before what's the risk that the the pieces that are presented just won't necessarily work on a stage? Well, um, that's a great question. And a way that we've combated that is to make sure we have time. So um, Bridget and I have definitely been dramaturgs as well as directors on this project. The initial pitch was 300 words from our writers um, and we have worked quite closely with them to turn that into a script for stage. Some of our writers come from TV. Uh, one is quite a well-known independent uh, theatre uh, actor writing for the first time for stage. Um, one of our other writers is uh, into VR and gaming and she's done a lot of performance writing but not for the black box theatre. So um, each one has been a different rehearsal process. I think it would have been very challenging if we'd asked all writers to collaborate on one piece of work. Um, but we've kept all of the pieces quite separate until this last uh, pro- process of putting them together Um, sometimes we did readings other times we had to do more work on the floor with actors so that writers who hadn't seen their work performed uh, could visualize it and and that helped in their redrafting process talk to us Maya about that experience for you if you're used to performing your own words suddenly seeing them performed and spoken by somebody else how did that feel it felt amazing I think I sat there in the theater the first time I saw my words being acted out by um these wonderful women, I had tears rolling down my face and I kept going to a couple of rehearsals and each time I went, I came back, I was just punching the air and calling my partner and saying, oh my gosh, it was so wonderful. It's it's thrilling to see them enacted because as a writer, I've operated in a real vacuum and I think a lot of writers do. It's all very much the noise that happens in your head and what you let out onto the paper or the keyboard. So seeing other people impart extra comedy or meaning into it through their uh, performance, through their intonation, is it's it's a really lovely uh, vision of collaboration. I really enjoyed it. The production we're talking about is She is Vigilante on at Theatre Works, uh, previewing tonight and running through until the 16th of November. Let's talk about that theme, the notion of the vigilante, uh, somebody who... Uh, makes uh, on on the on the one hand a vigilante has real negative connotations it's somebody who instead of letting justice take its natural course goes and kind of takes control of something themselves uh, whether it's the the masked kind of 
the masked vigilante from a comic book, for example, who's kind of punishing the people who the law won't punish or whatever reason. We've got one of those in the show. Uh, cool. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that notion of making public space safer for other people seems to be perhaps one of the ideas at the heart of this collection of works. Would that be fair? Definitely. Um, and it was definitely our our prompt or we were responding to um, violent acts against women that were happening in Melbourne um, and some of the pieces speak directly to that. Others uh, are inspired by that but have gone in different directions. Um, so what I think is really wonderful about this piece is that we're, as a, as a whole, is that we're dealing with a very serious, dark issue but we're looking at it from so many different perspectives with all these different writers. Some are lighter, some are darker. Um, I think everyone that comes will be surprised by some element of the show, but it's also not a man-hating everything is bad um, end note, I hope. We're more hoping that this is a generative uh, piece of theatre that opens up discussion and we're trying to open up discussion with it as well about what can be done by everyone to stop this happening. And also opening up discussion about who owns theatre and who has the right. the opportunity to perform in it. As you said, the, the fact that you put out not only an open call for writers but an open call for uh, performers through organisations like the City of Port Phillip, St Kilda Community Housing, the Sacred Heart Mission and so forth, bringing in people to perform who, again, may not, just like some of your writers, may not have had the opportunity for any kind of professional performance before but have a hunger to express themselves I imagine then a fairly long workshopping process in order to teach them some kind of uh, elements of stagecraft and and performance definitely Um, and it's been a real community building exercise so all of the actors have been involved in our development of the works so along along the writing process we had workshops that both trained the actors as well as allow the writers to see their work on stage um, and what I think we've ended up with is a really captivating show these are women who uh, might remind you of your mum or you or your friend um, and that's a really exciting thing to see on stage rather than uh, a much more sort of sexy, glamorous, put-together, not-so-relatable woman or person in general. Uh, Maya, talk to us about some of... Uh, I mean, your work is called... Uh, is it Robot Coupe? Robot uh, Coupe? Robo Coupe. Look, we're in discussions with the manufacturers of the product as to the pronunciation <laughs> in Australia, but we're going with Robo Coupe. Okay. Uh, talk to us about some of the other works uh, that are uh, and the other writers that are in the program as well. I, I imagine you've had an opportunity to watch some of the other scripts in development and workshopped and rehearsed. Yes, so I went to a run-through uh, a week ago and saw sort of the order of all of, of the program and the work of the other writers and it's the other uh, four pieces are a bit longer than my short five pieces that are put together, about 15 minutes, and they are varied in theme. Uh, there's some... Um, really compelling dark questions that are asked in one of the pieces by Chanel and Macri. Her piece is called You May Not Rest Now, There Are Monsters Nearby. Um, dark subject matter but really looks into the heart of the vigilante and does find the heart of it. What what drives a woman to seek justice? What makes her do the things that other people will say are terrible and indeed can be terrible but also what 
for what reason and why has she been left out in the cold so long that she feels that she has to do it herself. So that's a really compelling piece. I've also really enjoyed uh, Athena Huntress of Women by uh, Lauren... Huntress, Huntress of, of Men. men. <laughs> Huntress, I'm sorry. <laughs> Athena Huntress of Men <laughs> by Lauren and, and Megan. They've done a sort of a real... Um, uh, action like a comic kind book. Of, it's a comic book. It is a comic book. I'm it's like sorry. an action kind of scene. There's a dance routine in it. It's really fun. It's dark. It's quick. It's witty. And it's. I was sitting there watching it again and just and tickle pink by by how fun um, you can be being accessing all those really dark parts of yourself and using them to present compelling stories. Something that Maya and uh, their piece Athena by Lauren and Megan, all of their work does is make us um, laugh a lot. And um, this piece in particular really uh, flips the uh, trope of drag, which is used so much by men performing women in comedy, uh, like um, Monty Python, for example. Um, but they do a great job of having the burly bogan on stage. And I think some, most women... Some drag king action. Yeah. <laughs> and most women have experienced that drunk guy on a tram late at night wanting to have a conversation that you don't want to have. Um, and it's hilarious yeah. and very recognisable to see. The production is She is Vigilante, previewing tonight, running through until the 16th of November at TheatreWorks, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. You can jump online, www.theatreworks.org.au for more information and booking details. It's not just a series of uh, new short plays, but it's uh, a really, I think, a genuinely exciting uh, exploration of access in the theatre and bringing in new people and new stories and new voices onto the TheatreWorks stage. So, uh, yeah. It sounds really exciting. So the dates again, the 7th to the 16th of November at TheatreWorks, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda, theatreworks.org.au for booking details. Christella Pierce and uh, Maya Amanita, thank you both so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, thank you. Richard. Triple R. If you're um, at all familiar with the history of Australian art, the the name Boyd is going to uh, kind of ring quite a few bells. But if you're familiar with pottery, then the Arthur Merrick Boyd pottery is probably also going to ring a few bells. That's the conversation we're going to have now. I'm joined by Diane Samilis, who's the curator of Glenira City Council Gallery. And I'm also joined by historian and author Colin Smith to talk about the exhibition Stories in Clay, Arthur Merrick Boyd Pottery. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. So, look, uh, I think, Colin, I'm going to start with you. Kind of why was the Arthur Merrick Boyd kind of pottery kind of uh, so significant? It's, I mean, it's kind of legendary in, in, in Australian ceramics, but why? I suppose it's legendary for a number of reasons. Um, for a start, because the, the people involved with it, um, Arthur Boyd is a bit of a legend in Australian art and, uh, and perhaps in our post-war period our cr most creative artist, um, continually reinventing himself, continually putting out, um, expressing himself in the most extraordinary ways. Um, John Percival and, uh, and also Peter Herbst, a friend, started the AMB Pottery in 1944. Um, they were really all looking for a way to make a living. In truth, in the post-war period, how are we going to make a dollar? Um, and so they came together and established this pottery in Murrumbina. Um, they were just ahead of their time. They were just so creative. And, of course, John Percival and Arthur Boyd were both painters. So they saw this as a way of making a dollar, putting out pottery, but also 
expressing who they were as painters. Diane, in presenting an exhibition like this, is there the the risk of mythologising uh, a particular period in Australian art while at the same time ignoring contemporary ceramics? Um, I think... Look, I think it's an exhibition like this reinforces the importance of post-war Australian ceramics. That's something... It's an extraordinary body of work uh, produced at the AMB Pottery Studio and there are some remarkable pieces of pottery by Arthur Boyd, John Percival and Neil Douglas, but also some pieces by some of the other artists who worked there, Yvonne Boyd, Mary Boyd, uh, also... Um, many other artists who were involved in the collaborative spirit at the A&B Pottery. So um, I think for me, when I was curating the exhibition and researching the exhibition, it was important to give an overview of the creativity and the innovation that emerged during these important years. So post-war Melbourne, uh, it was a very vibrant, creative environment in the studio and some remarkable pieces of Australian pottery emerged from during that period. Just how innovative are we talking here? I think that they really broke the mould in terms of the, the, the pottery that was available then, which was really quite conservative in the Bernard Leach tradition, which was a tradition of very conservative decoration, really quite plain and not figurative at all. And the Boyd simply and the, the AMB simply didn't follow anybody's pattern. In a way, it's the most interesting part of the story, or one of the most interesting. Those people, those groups of people who really don't take anybody's roadmap except their own. It's one of those sort of chemistry things where the right people come together at the right time to make such interesting stuff. And when you think about the artists who did work at the AMB, as Diane alluded to, um, Albert Tucker, um, Charles Blackman, um, David Boyd, Guy Boyd, Mary Boyd, all these people coming in at different times, John Howley, um, the Burstals, all these people who use the AMB uh, as a springboard in a way to go places in the world because none of them were known people, none of them were known artists. A lot of those artists were struggling and poor, including Arthur Boyd, John Percival. Um, and so it's that period of time before people are successful but establishing themselves, almost fermenting to go forth and do what they do. And kind of inspiring one another, cross-fertilising mm. and so forth. And so developing, as you said, instead of a, a, a relatively conservative uh, ceramic tradition from that point, suddenly we see idiosyncratic, colourful, mm. personal, kind of uh, individual pieces mm. of work being made. Extraordinary work. And you think of some of the sculptures that came out. For, for example, um, John Percival's Delinquent Angels. Um, uh, uh, Arthur, Arthur Boyd, Boyd was doing those extraordinary mm. sculptures at that time, some with the religious themes. Huge blocks, you know, a metre high, half a metre wide. Um, Judas kissing Christ. Um, Arthur Boyd used a lot of religiousness, religious icons in his work and, and this is expressed all the way through what he does. The diversity of the work at the AMB Pottery is extraordinary. Platters, coffee sets, sculptures, delinquent angels, ceramic tiles, 
all just being produced because it's what they wanted to do. Now, am I right in thinking, uh, Diane, that this is also a relatively brief period in which they were producing work? Because uh, I was yes. looking at the NGV website, for example, yeah. and I think the dates for the Arthur Merrick Boyd pottery are, what, 1944 to 1958. So, so it's not yeah. kind of a... It's not... Not no, a huge amount of time. No. We're not talking decades of no, work here. No, no. So it was a fairly yeah short period. So I think it sort of continued through to the early 60s, 62. And John Percival worked and Neil Douglas worked at the pottery right to the end. Arthur Boyd sort of left the pottery in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, but as Colin said, some amazing pieces of pottery emerged during that period. And for Arthur Boyd in particular the body of expressive figurative sculptures, ceramic sculptures that emerged after his work at the A&B Pottery are really significant in terms of Australian modernism, Australian art history. We've got a beautiful example in the exhibition Woman on the Phone, 1954, which is a key work from that period. And as I said, those works evolved from the experimentation and the work that he did at the AMB Pottery and led to a major public sculpture commission for Arthur Boyd in 1954, a large ceramic totemic um, pole or sculpture for the Olympic swimming pool in 1956. So that really put his career on the map and is very significant in terms of his output, his creative output, and also important in... Just it signifies how important the ceramic medium was to Arthur Boyd during that period. He really did. If you think about 1944 when he came into the AMB pottery, he'd just come out of the army. He was a young guy. He's 22 years of age, just sorting himself out. By the end of the AMB pottery in 1958, he's about to go to England to launch his career with the Bride series of paintings. So if you think about uh, that period of his life... Um, it's all going, you know. It's those periods of our own lives where we go through a lot in a relatively short amount of time. They're the years that change us really from being young to being middle-aged to having no experience to having experience to not know what we're doing to know what we're doing. And I think that period of time for Arthur, if you look where he started and finished, uh, at the end of the AMB's time, um, he's done the ceramic totem pole mm. at, uh, in the Olympic swimming pool in Melbourne. Uh, he's yes. painted at uh, Harkaway. He's lived at his uncle's house, the Grange, and done those beautiful Harkaway paintings. Mm. Uh, he's done those big sculptures. He's all the time pushing himself. What can I do next? Where do I go next? Arthur Boyd's extraordinary because he was a well of creativity. And the Arthur Merrick Boyd show shows where he was at that time, both as a potter, but also his decoration on the pottery because he painted onto pots. Mm. He painted onto coffee sets. And the paintings are a complete blast. Mm. They are so good. Now, Diane, in terms of curating and bringing mm. this exhibition, it sounds like you have such a wealth of material to work with yes. that actually kind of uh, reducing it down to some key works. And so that sounds like a bit of a challenge in and of itself. But And then I also understand that quite a few other institutions have loaned, loaned work yeah. from their collections in order to so, tell the story. Yes, so the curatorial process is fascinating um, and always, you know, just so interesting for me as a curator. This, the, the challenge with this exhibition was there was a lot of material there, but how do you condense it and make and tell the story in an interesting and accessible way just to enrich the visitor experience? That's always my aim when I'm curating exhibitions. How will the visitors engage with the works? 
So um, I selected key works by Arthur Boyd, John Percival and Neil Douglas as the main artists. I was very lucky to, when I was researching the exhibition, to come across an oral history recording with Peter Herbst, courtesy of the National Library of Australia. It was a very extensive oral history, but there's a 14-minute excerpt from that oral history in the exhibition, and I've created a small room with where you can hear the sound of Peter Herbst's voice, where he talks about the creation of the A&B pottery, his involvement, and also the collaborative spirit of the pottery. So for me, that was just amazing, and it really, I think, hearing his voice really enriches the exhibition. And then um, I was fortunate to be able to borrow works from major public museums, so National Gallery of Victoria, Heidi Museum of Modern Art, Monash University Museum of Art, and also Shepparton Art Museum, and many private collections. So it was wonderful to see what private collectors have and to be able to work with the collectors and source the works and include them in the exhibitions. I love the notion of uh, a modern, somebody who is a collector now owning, say, uh, uh, one of these kind of uh, coffee sets or tea sets. And if I owned one, part of me would want to just have it on display and just reverently look at it. But I'd also be going, no, this is a functional item. It was designed to be used. Mm. Maybe kind of save it for special occasions, but still use it. Do people still use uh, the, the, the pottery to serve tea, to serve cake? I don't think too many use the AMV top end things because they're just so beautiful Mm. and they've survived 50 or 60 years. I don't think you're going to risk it. But certainly the Boyds, um, the AMV pottery is part of that very rich Murrumbina Boyd story, you know, centred around American Doris Boyd in Murrumbina. Um, Of course, Arthur was their son. So the pottery history of Murrumbina, the AMV story is just part of a broader Boyd history of Murrumbina because of course Murrumbina is where the most artistic period of Boyd creativity began with the you know the marvelous work of um, of Merrick Boyd. So it's um, it's just a very rich story that keeps on giving. Do you think it's a, a story that is as well known as it should be compared, say, to the the Heidi Circle, who seem to get perhaps more more time in the in the art spotlight? I don't think it's as well known, possibly, as the Heidi story. Um, the open country story, I think, is a bit more recognised, possibly. You know, the, the early years of the open country property in the studio and the work that evolved out of that and the generations of the Boyd family that emerged and you know established careers. Um, but the Arthur Merrick Boyd pottery, I think, is possibly not as well known as the Heidi story, even though a lot of the artists who worked at Heidi and were connected with John and Sunday Reed are part of the story because they worked at the pottery. I think one of the differences is that Heidi still exists. It's a gallery, yeah. it's a mm. place where you go and you're continually enriched by the, the John and Sunday Reed story. Whereas and it's, so it's self-perpetuating. Absolutely, yeah. and, and, and the, 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 um, the reputation grows. It's such a beautiful place. How could you not love it? Um, whereas in the Boyd's case, you know, there were uh, three Boyd houses in Roonga Crescent, Murrumbina, plus the AMB Pottery, and all of those houses have gone bar one. But the house that Merrick and Doris Boyd grew up in, and sorry, lived in, and, and Arthur Boyd was born in, and that whole pottery scene developed from, was demolished in the 1960s. So when you lose that physical history, people who come to the area don't have that physical history to grip on to. It's a place where a pottery in-house used to be, not where it is. 
But I do think at the same time in the area and in Murrumbina there's a, a strong interest in the Boyd history because it is something that does make it a little bit different to, uh, to other areas. Um, and continually Murrumbina residents and people in the wider area um, do show their interest in the narrative um, because it's a fascinating story and because it's a very real story. And you mentioned before about do, you, do people still use the pottery? Well, Merrick Boyd always believed pottery should be functional and beautiful. And I know I've got a couple of pieces that I still put chips and peanuts in when I serve <laughs> food because I think the whole idea is to use them and enjoy them and not put them in a cabinet. But that's a personal view. And then I think... Um, you know, we, we treat these things away in, in certain ways. Arthur Boyd said that we didn't own anything. It all just passes through our hands. So I think that, you know, we should use these items and, and as much as we can appreciate them as living items rather than just museum pieces as much as possible. Glenira City Council is presenting the exhibition Stories in Clay, Arthur Merrick Boyd Pottery uh, at the Glenira City Council Gallery uh, on the corner of Glenira and Hawthorne Roads Caulfield. Uh, it's running now until Sunday the 15th of December www.glenira.vic.gov.au forward slash gallery for more details and information and there is of course a series of public programs that have been scheduled to run throughout the exhibition as well so more opportunities to uh, to learn about the history of the Boyd and of the Arthur Merrick Boyd pottery. I've been talking with uh, Diane Samilis and historian Colin Smith. Thank you both so much for coming in. Uh, I wish we could talk for another Another half hour or more, but sadly, I've only got about seven minutes left of the show. So, <laughs> thank, thank you for coming thank in. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, thanks so thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 